would remind all Americans at this hour. The problem can never be stated in terms of black and white. Unless America repents of this evil. Until this moment, there is scarcely any hope for the American dream. But rarely in any time does an issue lay bare the secret heart of America itself. It's America that looks upon herself and represents herself as the leader of the free world. I had to hate somebody. I had to blame somebody. You can't hate America because you can't see it to hate it. We live in a nation, mightiest, the toughest, the roughest cats going, you know, in the whole world. In one What your role is in this country and what your future is in it. Hi, welcome to American Self. On this podcast, we grapple frankly with the conflicted, beautiful, and twisted heart of American identity. My name is Amas Muhammad. Thank you for joining me. It is Thursday, August 27th, 2020, and I know I'm getting this episode to you a day late, and I apologize for that. We are hurtling towards school opening. I have pivoted into a new career path and an election looms. All of us are transitioning, reconfiguring, getting our things together, adapting to these tumultuous and erratic times. But we are here now and we are surviving and we are persevering and there are small victories every day. Today's episode is going to be a little different. Where I normally would sit down with a guest and parse out, explore, feel our way through some of these ideas of what it means to be American in this time of ours, I realize that there is an important, we are at an important moment in our engagement with our media and the stories that are coming through those lenses. I would like to today highlight a media platform, an take a moment to highlight the importance of independent media platforms, bringing the stories, not always on the national scale, which can feel so daunting, so driven, so astronomical and bewildering in the narrative twist and turns and the guided the curated guidance of how we, are, we should feel when we see these stories, how they are twisted to affect us and to those who do, do or do not agree with us. But today, today, I want to focus on those media platforms that are building from their, within their communities, that are speaking and having the conversations that are, being, that are current that are affecting those who are in their cities, in their neighborhoods. These stories are just as important as what's playing out across the nation, even more so because it is something that is tangible, that you can feel connected to, that you can reach out and be a part of. Independent media is so important because it is driven only by those who see the need to bring the truth of their experience to those around them. With little money, but incredible passion, these projects explore, highlight, 
respond to, expand the narratives of communities that are within the fight itself, that are reeling from, that are existing in, that are persevering, overcoming, and bringing beautiful change within what feels like a dour limbo of atrocity and dehumanization and normalization and desensitization. Today on the podcast, I'm going to be sharing a story that was recorded on another podcast outlet. Through the Riverwise magazine, a magazine that was founded in 2017, springing from the James and Grace Lee Boggs Center on the east side of Detroit. This magazine's created by a team of authors and writers, photojournalists, parents, elders, students, organizers, activists, visionaries, working together to create independent and beautiful media that reflects local activism, profound and uplifting work around Detroit neighborhoods. It's incredible to deepen those relations within our communities through these media platforms, serving as an essential part of bringing us the news untouched by outside interests, only the truth and the honesty of the people doing the work. The stories are tough and they are joyful and uplifting and inspiring. They also weave these narratives, creating that tapestry, that richness that holds us together as citizens in this beloved community. They tell stories of resilience and visionary resistance, education, self-determination, and the sustainability of our own communities. I was lucky enough to be able to be a part of their own podcast project. I'm grateful that they are allowing me today to bring you one of those conversations. Today you will hear Riverwise's managing editor, Eric Campbell, and myself discussing the efficacy and the realities around defunding police and police abolition with the incredibly eloquent and talented P.G. Watkins, a non-binary organizer and facilitator and organizational strategist out of Detroit. They're the co-founder and director of the Detroit Black Bottom Archives. They founded the Detroit chapter of Black Youth Power 100 with a push to educate the community on police surveillance, the Project Greenlight initiative, and working towards the abolition of the police in our cities. Please find and support your local media outlets. These are the voices that we need to hear, that we need to support, that we need to be a part of. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy the special episode. And as always, please reach out to us at American underscore self on Instagram and email us at any time with your American photos, thoughts, arguments at staybrave.america at gmail.com. Thank you. Now, please enjoy this special episode from the Riverwise podcast.
this is what my life sounds like A slice of rice Welcome to the River Rice Podcast. Here we have another dispatch bringing you the conversations and the topics that are impacting the communities in and around the city of Detroit, focusing on sustainability, direct action, and the empowerment of those being affected by the times we are living in. Uh, I am your host, Amas Muhammad, and always I am joined by the intrepid managing editor of Riverwise Magazine, Eric Campbell. Hey, how you doing, folks? Thank you for joining us um, in this. I don't know where we're at now. What are we at? Five or six? The installments of the of the Riverwise podcast. Um, we're joined again by PG Watkins, who participated in our first podcast. So we thank uh, PG for coming back. A lot's a lot has happened since then, and um, we hope to uh, unpack some uh, some things that are happening in and around Detroit, around com- com- around community policing specifically. But um, in the time that we have, we'll get to that and uh, maybe some more. So, uh, PG, thank you for joining us again. Uh, we appreciate you being here. Hey, y'all. I'm happy to be here. Good talking to mm-hmm. you. Um, so we, we're going to jump right in. We're going to try to uh, we're going to talk for about 30 minutes. We want to jump right into what's happening on the streets of Detroit, on the streets across the nation and globally, even around um, around police brutality, around the brutal murder of George Floyd. Um, which kicked things off, and we want to talk about, you know, what role you've had in 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 the protests and and the talks around the idea around community policing and how that idea now is. We're hearing more acceptance around that. The last time we talked, we talked about um, police surveillance and how that uh, how that ties into the overall over policing that's taking place in urban communities across the nation. So uh, maybe we could start by um, PG. You could talk about a little bit about the role that you've uh, you've played in in the protest. Um, what your experience has been down uh, downtown, and um, how a form is developing around this idea of community policing. Yeah. So I mean, I think the first thing is that the conversation I'm involved in, and that I see a lot of people involved in, is not necessarily one about community mm-hmm. policing. Rather, it's one about. Um, defunding and ultimately abolishing the police period um, and and turning to more community-centered models of care and safety, mm-hmm. including like making sure resources are in communities in the ways that they need to be so that people have their basic needs met, so that crime happens less, making sure mental health issues are taken care of. So yeah, I just want to make that distinction about community policing is a model that we've seen Detroit try to implement in terms of their neighborhood police officers and things like that. But really the values of the moment, I think what's getting amplified across the uh, nation and really across the world right now is that police policing as a system, as we know it, is inherently racist and violent and can't be reformed. It can't be anything except for racist and violent and therefore needs to be done away with. Um, and so, yeah, what we've seen across the last across the country the last two weeks has been a bunch of uprisings by people from all over Really, yes, under the banner of, um, you know, justice for George Floyd, but also justice for Breonna Taylor, who was killed by police in Louisville, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Also justice for um, black trans people who have been killed by police and by just other people who are violent against them, um, including Nina Pop and Tony McDade. Um, there are se- and um, and then recently also we know Ahmaud Arbery, you know, and um, his killing also has sparked a lot of activation and anger 
um, in black communities and in communities mm. all over the country and the world. So um, in Detroit, folks have been taking action on the street for the last, well, today is day 13, 13 days consecutively. People have been um, downtown, but really all over the city taking action in the name of justice, in the name of um, ending police brutality, and in the name of defunding the police. And from my position, it's been like hella cool to see the ways that folks are self-organizing themselves around this issue. I know on our last, the last time I was on this podcast, I talked a bit about BYP 100, Black Youth Project 100, um, and, you know, helping to start the Detroit chapter here. And essentially, BYP 100 is an abolitionist organization. We believe that police, that surveillance, that prosecution, that criminalization, incarceration should not exist. And that there are other ways for us to be in relationship with each other. There are other ways to hold people accountable to harm. And BYP 100 is part of this larger body of organizations called the Movement for Black Lives, which um, when people often talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, and they they name it as if it's you know just a hashtag or just a, a movement of unorganized people, there really actually is a body of folks who are moving this work, who are doing all the messaging and strategy and things for the nation, really. So part of that is the Black Lives Matter Global Network, which is an organization in itself that has chapters all over. Um, but then also the Movement for Black Lives, which is a, co- a national coalition of Black-led organizations that have really been leading the fight and the call to defund police. And so in Detroit, the protests have been, like I said, happening for 13 days. Folks have been rallying outside of the Detroit Public uh, Safety Headquarters um, downtown and they each day really have a, a, a kind of a community meeting <laughs> right before the march starts. Um, there's a time for like a bit of an open mic for folks to share their own causes, the things that they're fighting against, to talk about why they're there. Um, and also for folks that are in the crowd to be able to make some decisions about, OK, what actually are we saying we're fighting for? What are the demands of this moment and how are we going to hold the people in power accountable to the demands that we're um, that we're seeking. So uh, you might have seen on Facebook or on social media or whatever in the last week, you know, there was a list of, I think, over 20, like 23 demands that had come from this kind of crowdsourced moment mm-hmm. at the protest downtown. And then those were consolidated into a list of 11 demands, of which they do include defunding and demilitarizing the police and um, ending Project Greenlight, which are things that BYP 100 and others have been organizing against for the last couple of years. Um, in the city. So it feels really good that there's energy around these types of demands, that folks are feeling um, activated and ready to make demands to hold the police accountable and ultimately to think about what safety can look like outside of policing in the way that we've known it. So we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of uh, in the media and and um, through other channels, we're, we're seeing a lot of the, the footage around the march and we're hearing a lot about the marches, but the, a lot of the real work's happening um, in those spaces that are developing leading up to the march or after the march or maybe perhaps during the march themselves but a lot of this a lot of this work around what we want to see as a community is being done in those spaces around the uh, public safety headquarters is what you're saying yeah i think that is a, that is one of the big places of conversation is this kind of rallying point outside of the, uh, the detroit public safety headquarters yeah. um, where folks kind of rally for about an hour or longer some days to have their open mic and to have their open forum um, and then there's also a lot of work happening behind the scenes in meetings that happen throughout the day and into the night 
um, between organizations and organizers and activists who are thinking about what does coordination look like in this time? How do we as organizers who have been on the ground for the last several years take advantage of the fact that there's literally a thousand plus people on the streets every day? You know what I mean? Like that's huge. And there is ways that we need to be ready to bring those folks in, you know, to um, bring them into our organization, involve them into some sustained long-term movement building um, that really allows for us to build past this moment. So yeah, some of that is happening at the open forums and then some of that is happening in between the marches, in between these actions, you know, with a lot of hard conversations um, and some collaboration across Can the world. Can you share a little bit of what that looks like? Because I know there are a lot of people when you see you know, like you mentioned, a lot of people have been doing this work for many years and it is it is not new to them. But for a lot of people, they're experiencing uh, moments of aha, right, that they're waking up to this. And there is that desire to get involved and to be and to support. But sometimes with misdirection or, you know, not understanding of how to do it productively, how are those conversations tapping and shaping and utilizing uh, these people who are coming to the movement, who are coming to the space, who are feeling indignation and outrage, but not necessarily direction. Yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the hard questions about organizing, right? It's like we, as I know, particularly for BYP 100 and like the organizing I've been doing locally for the last five years, like it's hard to get folks to believe in some and to really follow and get into some of these more radical visions for ending these systems that we've become so mm -hmm. used to, right? To end systems of surveillance, end systems of policing. It actually takes a lot <laughs> to get folks to agree with us and to get folks to come on board with us, right? So the the idea that there are so many people who are angry, who are activated, who are ready right now is 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 a huge mm -hmm. um, opening for organizers like myself. And at the same time, it's hella overwhelming. <laughs> like, you know, this is a thousand people. Um, our organizations are not necessarily, there are some organizations in the city who are set up to, you know, who have that, like thousands of members who can hold that maybe. But the organizations I work with that are hella local, hella grassroots, aren't necessarily ready for an influx of like 500 new members, right? Like that's not something that we have the capacity or infrastructure right now to hold. So I know that the conversations I've been a part of are thinking, trying to think strategically about like, yes, we need to leverage this moment, leverage this mm. level of attention. Um, and also we need to make sure that the infrastructure and the capacity that we have for bringing these folks in can also be sustained, right? Like that we're not just thinking about this moment, that we are thinking strategically and long-term about getting our demands met, about um, showing up you know, we know that in order to get demands met, we have to show up consistently to the people in power. We have to activate. We do have to continue activating thousands of people all across the city of Detroit to um, be in, aligned with these values and demands. So um, it's looked like some hard work. I know there's been I, mean, I don't necessarily want to get in too much into this part, but there has been some contention from long term organizers and activists who have been on the ground and the folks who are kind of um, popping up in this moment of activation. Because there's a sense of uh, proprietariness over these ideas or something, it's like, you know, we've been talking about this for five years. You're just now talking about it, right? And so there's a contradiction there of like, yeah, you've been talking about it for five years. And aren't you so excited <laughs> that there's thousands of people also talking about this, you know? Um, so it's a, there's, there's a complexity of ideas and, and positions around what this moment means for um, organizing, grassroots organizing in Detroit. But for me, my, my opinion is like, this is a huge moment for us. 
And if we can galvanize this energy and target it towards some real um, strategic sustained moves, like that could be major. We mm-hmm. could really see some historic shit happen in 2020 here in Detroit. If, mm-hmm. um, do you think that that, that shift is going to come in the short term, at least, do you think it's going to come by putting more pressure on the city? You know, some of, some of the folks that we, um, uh, that we, right with at Riverwise and some of the folks that we um, organize with and conversate with are, are talking about, you know, for example, putting pressure on the uh, the police board of commissioners right now and attending meetings. We've seen, you know, the, the, the mayor and the police chief respond, not in the way we'd like, but we've seen them respond to, to um, the demands that have been put forth. Um, do you think that that, that strategy, if, if we can call it a strategy, should be pushed forth or should we also... You know, are we also looking to um, uplift some of the, I mentioned earlier, some of the um, organizations that have been involved in more community-style policing, or is there room for both, perhaps? I mean, I think we have to have multi-pronged approaches, right? It's like we have to be thinking about um, holding mm-hmm. the people who are currently making the decisions accountable to make better decisions, right? So that includes the mayor, that includes the port, board of police commissioners who is the civilian oversight board for the uh, police department and it uh, includes the city council. And so that, you know, that means, yeah, showing up at their meetings, raising hell, letting them know you're not going to let them make decisions without community input, letting them know that you're going to hold them accountable when they say that they've made a decision that supposedly is in the best interest of Detroit residents, that they actually need Mm -hmm. to follow through with that commitment. So there's a part of it that's that, that's definitely holding folks accountable. Um, and then there's the part of it that there's other parts of it too, right? There's, we need different people in power. So, you know, there are folks who are fighting to, or organizing around moving, uh, the decision makers, moving them out and getting other people in who would ideally make better decisions on behalf of the people of Detroit. And then there's folks who are like, you know, honestly, fuck this system. We can't trust it. It wasn't made for us in the first place. We need to be thinking about how do we build our own resilience? How do we build, create alternative systems that we control? You know, the idea of self-governance and self-determination that happens in, in a, at a wide scale, right? Like some of it's at the level of the home or the block, right? Like how do we decide here what happens on the street? How do we take care of each other, make sure we all have food, that we all are good? Um, and then some of it is stuff that needs to be scaled up to be able to hold mm-hmm. like a whole neighborhood, you know, um, <laughs> a whole city. But like, there are people who are thinking about how do we build these kind of resilience-based systems, these self-sustaining systems um, mm-hmm. that are alternatives to what we already know. Um, and I think we need to be fighting on all of those levels. I think we need to be taking advantage of the fact that nobody in power right now can run or hide from the messaging, the mm-hmm. national and global mm-hmm. messaging of defunding the police. Like that is a national conversation. They're talking about that on Fox News. Um, They're calling it ridiculous and they're calling it dumb, but they're talking about it, right? Like this is out there, yeah. That that everyone is having right now in some way, Um, and that's major, you know. So there are just ways that we have to be thinking about all the different levels of the fight, and and there are definitely folks who are on each of those levels. And then there's like, how do we coordinate? between the folks who are thinking about all those different things um, to make sure that what we're doing is all towards the same end and that we're doing this super concentrated, yeah. coordinated strike against the system rather than these kind of one-off things that different, you know what I mean? Like that sometimes happens like, okay, this org's going to do this one thing. And then a little while later, this other org's going to do this other thing. 
it's like, how, how do we make sure that we are doing this in a way that's so strong, so direct and so clear that like they can't run away from it. They can't hide it. They can't do anything mm-hmm. but actually concede to the demands that we're making. How do you feel? Can I ask you about now that, you know, the Minneapolis police uh, or the Minneapolis city has, you know, unanimously decided to defund their police department. Now that we're seeing that actually happen, when that now is, you know, said, and those funds are now being redistributed, what do you see as the best use almost in the immediacy? Um, if we were to do something like that here, where do we, because the, those systems have to be happening. Like we, we talk about doing that. And then once it's done, what is that next step? Where do we see, um, because it's going to be, a, a systemic multi moot prong, like you said, uh, stage, you know, elimination of the police system as we know it. But what happens once you defund, you have those funds, what's the best move um, after that, in your opinion? I mean, yeah, there's a, a few different options, in my opinion. I feel like um, there's a lot of things that the city, particularly the city of Detroit, the city's all over the place will claim to not have money for, right? Um, mm-hmm. We claim to not have enough money to keep schools open, public schools open. We claim to not have enough money to, when those public schools are open, to make sure that they're maintained, that they have the supplies they need, that students are able to be there safely. Um, we claim we don't have enough money for public transit that is actually usable and keeps folks actually being able to move around the city in ways that are safe and consistent. We claim we don't have enough money to keep people in their homes and to make sure that people are not homeless um, or that people have their water on. And so there, but then at the same time, at the same time that we're saying all this, uh, we are also saying that the city of Detroit police department deserves hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Like Mm -hmm. that they deserve to have that money. And it's just like, okay, if we could, take out even 1 million of those dollars, you know, like even just Mm -hmm. 1 million of those dollars and put them into buying houses for people who don't have houses or making sure folks in the city have their water on. Um, There's a water affordability plan that water justice organizers have been organizing against for years. That's just like, it always seems to be not an option or an impossible ask. And it's just like, well, if you would reduce the police budget, by, I mean, I don't have the exact number um, offhand right now, but it's like, you know, if we were to reduce the police budget by several million, then actually we would be able to afford this type of water affordability plan. Yeah. And so they're just different. I feel like there are many different resources that we need right now to make sure that folks actually have what keeps them safe. They have food, they have water, they have shelter. They are not um, trying to. You know, okay, what I'll say is people I know and it's been proven, people uh, commit crimes when their basic needs aren't met, right? Like that's a Yeah, thing. absolutely. We need police, in my opinion, we would not need police if people had their basic needs met. <laughs> like there would be mm-hmm. like if people were able to get the mental health support they needed when they needed it and in an acceptable way, then we wouldn't have folks who are doing these outrageous, ridiculous things, right? Like cause they'll have, they'll be able to stabilize themselves and regulate their, their systems in a way that keeps them from harming other people. So yeah, yeah. I, I just think there's, there are actually many, many different things we could put this money into, you know? Um, very. I, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think two things that, that listening to you brought up for me is one, I saw something recently mm-hmm. where they were comparing some of the police department budgets 
in just cities in this country to the military expenditures of other countries. And you'd see, so when people don't understand, when you're saying like just reducing it by a little bit would change it where places like LA and New York, they're just for their police department, it is the same as some of these like countries' entire national military expense. expense. So right there, absolutely in these cities, we could see a freeing up of outstanding amounts of money. And secondly, something that you brought up, and this is kind of, I think what I was asking is when people think about public safety or you know, if we get rid of the police, what happens is, you know, we have, we do have systems already in place for caregivers for the public, where we have social workers and uh, emergency, uh, like uh, EMTs and even firefighters, excuse me, firefighters who work at, you know, caring, not policing. And when you start re-signing or re-diverting those funds you see those basic needs being met. You see people who are having mental health issues not being handcuffed, but being de-escalated and talked down. Yeah, right? for sure. I mean, we also, I would say too, though, about about um, some of what you named in terms of the emergency or like the first responders or the people who are caregivers who do, who we could see as alternatives to responding to the police. We know that in this current system, People like child protective services, folks like social workers, people like mental, I mean, um, institutions like mental health hospitals, they do still operate in a policing way, right? Like they still do very much bring harm and violence onto people and onto families and communities. And so, yes, in diverting some of the funds into these things that we know will stabilize our communities, we also need to be doing the deep cultural shift of how we police each other, what are we... um, criminalizing, I think that when we talk about dismantling white supremacy and anti-Black racism, it's like, we have to be thinking about who are we considering most important? What are we considering a crime? And how do we treat people who we consider have done a crime? Um, But there's like all these other, like, cause you know, I don't know. I was just, there's been so much good stuff on social media lately. Mm -hmm. um, And I've just been reading from some of my disabled friends who I follow just about like, you know, mental health hospitals still are cages in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's not something that we, when we say defund the police, we're not saying invest in other types of cages. You know what I mean? We're trying to. Yeah, think about, no. For sure. Yeah, no, I, I know that's not necessarily what you were getting to, but I just like want to name that as like, that is something we all have to contend with, is that there are systems in place that contribute to policing our communities in ways that are just as harmful and violent sometimes as the police. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the big opportunity is the, in, is, is the change in values that, you know, we hope people are going through as we, you know, as you said, um, certain ideas and certain terminology, certain language is now being, is now finding places in the public sphere where it wasn't before. And, and we're hoping that leads to, you know, changes in policy and changes in the way we police um, on a municipal level. But we're also looking towards that change in values that hopefully, you know, the greater population is going through when it comes to looking at, uh, you know, black bodies and black, black people. Yeah, definitely. And it's also why I don't know an abolitionist organizer. Per- I like, I know a lot of abolitionist organizers. I don't know anyone who's talking about tomorrow. We end all the police departments across the country. You know what I mean? Like right. mm-hmm. not at all what folks are saying. And even the most radical of us who do believe that it needs to be an immediate or urgent ending to all police everywhere, know that taking away police means that we have to provide so much more, right? Like um, there's a quote that uh, 
you know, I'm going to, I'm going to misquote it, but it's essentially just about abolition, not being about absence, but about being about presence. Like when we talk about abolition, we're saying that we don't need cops because we need so much more. Like we need mm-hmm. housing and education and jobs and childcare and food. We don't need cops. And so, but we have to build up those other things because those have, we've been talking about defunding the cops and people are like, what do you mean defund? And it's like, but mm-hmm. schools have been defunded, right? Like we know that schools have been defunded. We know that yeah. jobs have been defunded. We know that there are all these other ways that money has been divested from our communities strategically, intentionally, right? Like to make sure that we are not able to thrive. Um, and so we have to we have to understand that abolition is a long game. It's a long term strategy and a daily practice. It is something that we are trying to work towards, and that we know in order to work mm-hmm. towards, we will have to what uh, what you said, Eric, change our values, have a radical shift values change our hearts and minds in the way that we treat each other and feel about each other um both as like black folks in detroit and also when we think about regionally across the tri-county area just like and across the world and the country how are we all treating each other differently Mm -hmm. and how are we all Mm -hmm. really understanding each other in a different way well we know you've got another meeting coming up uh pg and it's always a pleasure to talk to you and have you uh have you given can I ask you one thing real quick before we let you go? I just think that this is so important for people. Like, how are you doing? How are you caring for yourself? Because I know that people are tired and exhausted. And it's always good to hear how those of us who are fighting are also mm-hmm. doing self-care and, you know, treating ourselves. And how are you, you know, personally taking care of you and all this wildness? <laughs> that's, that's a great question. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I would say that... I have not been doing a great job of that. And then (laughs) in the last week or so, I will say Mm -hmm. that something that is supporting me right now is that I do have a practice, um, a somatics practice that I've been involved in for the last couple of years that has helped to keep me grounded. So, you know, there's a way that I try to practice centering and getting into my body and, you know, um, staying grounded that supports me in these high pressure, high stakes, high pressure moments. And so that's helpful, like that I have a practice that I can lean on that I already know. Um, and I will say that like, it's just been hard as hell to keep up with everything. Like I wasn't sleeping for a while and that made me feel like I was unable to do everything else, you know, like not even really able to clean my house, which is a form of caring for myself. I see cleaning my house as a form of caring for myself and it's been hard for me to do that. But so yeah, it's, a, it's an important question. And also I don't know that I have the best answer. I will say that um, something that's important to me that I've been grateful for is I do have a great squad around me. I have wonderful friends and support systems who check on me, who make sure I eat, who are checking on me when they know I'm not sleeping, who are taking some of the load off of me when they know that I'm holding a lot with the different coordination and organizing stuff that I'm doing. Um, And that to me is also, you know, caring for myself by letting myself get help, asking for help when I need it and letting myself be seen in all of the ways that I, am kind of lacking or whatever, you know, like seeing in all the ways that I'm like, okay, I'm not really showing up for myself here or I feel really really shitty and I just don't know quite what to do about it. Like having friends who are able to see me in that and support me through that um, has been awesome. And then I'm just trying to stay hydrated. I'm like, as long as I'm drinking water. Drink one, drink water. (laughs) (laughs) That's a win, you know? Um, So yeah, it's been, it's been a hard, long ass two weeks. And, um, and I have, I'm not even one of the folks who's on the ground every day. You know, that's a whole other level. 
I'm on the ground. Sometimes I do a lot of behind the scenes backstage stuff that's not as visible mm -hmm. and I'm exhausted. And so I know the folks that have been on the streets have just been exhausted. I'm grateful for the healers, black women, for healers, for people who are making sure that folks are cared for. There's a lot of folks locally, especially who are like, got herbal remedies for you. Please come to my house, pick up this protection bag. Like, you know, like there's all these ways that folks are offering care um, that are hella supportive too. All right. Well, we hope you can come back and join us, PG, soon. We want to check in on you, and um, we want to want to follow up on this conversation as things as things move forward. Yeah, can I share a couple of ways for folks to plug in? Absolutely, Absolutely. of course you can. Um, so one is you can always you should definitely be following Greenlight Black Futures on um, Facebook and Instagram. We are our campaign in Project Greenlight is still going strong. We have. Um, a lot on the table in terms of our conversations with city council about like what's possible there. Um, and the board of police commissioners meetings are happening very consistently. We announce when those happen on our page in order for folks to show up and make comments about what they'd like to see. We also are doing a community safety survey right now. A big conversation that's happening in this defund the police is uh, what does safety mean? How are we defining safety? How do we know that we actually are keeping each other safe? And so Greenlight Black Futures is doing is conducting our own community safety survey to get a sense of what does safety mean to people, what makes folks feel safe, how safe do people feel with policing and with surveillance. Um, and so I can send you that link so you can post it to folks, I guess. I don't know, like in the description or something. Sure. But if folks follow Greenlight Black Futures, you can find it there. And then the last little plug I'll do is um, right now there's an opportunity for us to actually change the city of Detroit's budget. When we talk about defunding the police, that's happening in cities all over the country now we're seeing, um, and it is possible here in Detroit. And there is a coalition for the for a people's budget um, that you can also find on Facebook, Coalition for a People's Budget, that is really in conversations right now and, and making demands of city council around immediate divestment and defunding of the police in certain areas in order to invest in things that our community needs in terms of transportation and education and public health. So um, if you follow us on Facebook, you can hear about our meetings and just staying in the loop with that. Um, but those are two really tangible ways for folks that are like, I can't really be on the streets right now, but I fuck with what y'all are saying and I really mm -hmm. want to do something. And I'm like, okay, yeah. great. These are two things you can plug into that are moving, that are active, that are going to live beyond this media moment, right? And are going to live and sustain through this uprising, through and beyond this uprising. So um, please join us, throw down with us. Um, yeah, that's all, all right. I want to say. We'll make sure we do our part and push those two groups out there uh, in all the ways that we can. And thank you so much again. We'll uh, we'll check in soon and hopefully we can, maybe we can even call this part one is what I'm hoping. We can yeah, make, I mean, I'm always down. I, I know you are. You know, I know, you know I'm always down to talk about this <laughs> yeah. stuff. I just think it's a conversation we need to be having more widely. And I'm down to like, I think what could be helpful or interesting is mm -hmm. uh, potentially seeing if there are any questions that are out there in the world, in the Riverwise universe, mm -hmm. um, from readers or listeners who are like, yeah, but what about this? What about that? And I'd be down to come and like do some Q&A stuff with That's people's good. questions about the practicality of defunding the police or abolishing the police state. So yeah, invite me back. I'm all here for it. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much, PG. Um, be right. safe and be healthy, and we'll talk to you very soon. Uh, yes, thank you. Yeah, both yeah. of you. All right, have a great yeah, day. For sure. Right. Peace. Talk to you soon, PG. Bye. That's how we out here now. That's how we out here now. Thank you so much for listening. 
This is Eric from Riverwise Magazine. As we navigate these challenging times of collective mourning and protest and transformation, we're grateful to be part of a vital network of community-based media. Your continued support is vital. So we just want to take a minute and recognize the people keeping the Riverwise podcast afloat. Those people include the Riverwise Collective, the James and Grace Lee Boggs Center, Kari Frazier, and the Detroit is Different Network. We thank them for their technical and creative support. We thank Heidi Osgood, L'Oreal West, Valerie Jean for their help in getting the podcast out to the public. We want to thank Reverend Joan Ross for her continued encouragement and inspiration at WNUC. Bryce Detroit, thank you for letting us use your track out here now from the album Structured Water. You should all look for it. And we want to thank the Detroit Journalism Engagement Fund, which is facilitated through the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan, who have supported Riverwise and this podcast and the writing workshop since 2018. Most importantly, we want to thank you, all the, the listeners, the readers, the people who are building community, building relationships out in the city of Detroit. We thank you for your support through the magazine, through the podcast, and we look forward to bringing more valuable content to you in 2020 and beyond. Peace. American Self is hosted and produced by myself, Hamas Muhammad. If you'd like to find more of our content, you can visit us at americanself.org. Our Instagram is American underscore self, and you can email us at staybrave.america at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Stay brave, be present, and I'll see you on the other side.